Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. As Idaho breaks new records for COVID cases, the state continues to ask local governments to make mitigation decisions. And that's putting some local officials in tricky positions. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News discusses how tensions between parents and teachers are affecting school board trustees. But first, cases are rising in every region of the state. And this week, two hospitals reported to their local boards of health that they were at capacity. But requests for mask mandates from medical professionals didn't convince boards in North Idaho or Magic Valley. The Panhandle Health District's board voted Thursday to rescind an existing mask order in Kootenai County, despite Kootenai Health representatives testifying that their hospital had hit 99% capacity the day before. One board member told officials that he didn't even believe COVID was the cause for the influx in patients. That, of course, isn't based in fact. Of note, the two representatives on the board from Kootenai Health wanted its mandate to remain in place. In Magic Valley on Wednesday, the Board of Health voted to ask Governor Brad Little to implement a statewide mask mandate. The board then voted down a motion to implement a regional mask mandate. In other words, some board members want the governor to make the decision, but don't want to do it themselves. Meanwhile, the health district moved six of its counties to the critical red category because of COVID spread, and Minidoka's school district is shut down for the next two weeks. On Friday, I spoke to Dr. Joshua Kern from St. Luke's Magic Valley about what his hospital is facing. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you give us an update on Magic Valley's hospital capacity right now? Yeah, uh, I, I guess the, to give a little context, we've been very strained over the last uh, several weeks. It's um, been uh, near capacity volumes of patients, uh, increasing numbers of COVID patients, so, you know, it's, it's been a very trying time for our staff. We've been uh, having to send some patients up to Boise when we haven't had room. So as of today, things are not necessarily looking brighter, but things are stable. We're uh, back open uh, to some admissions, uh, not necessarily from the outside, but we're not on diversion. Um, so we are, we're handling the capacity that we have right now uh, and the COVID, the COVID volumes are down just a little bit, but I think it's within a sort of a spectrum of, of what we're expecting over the next still couple of weeks. And you talked about how you're not currently diverting all patients, but you have been diverting a few patients over the past week. Yeah, out of necessity, we just haven't had staff and we've had to uh, have patients that appeared in our ER uh, that we could not bring into the hospital at Magic Valley and have uh, send them to uh, Boise uh, because of just our, our inability to have enough staff and uh, beds to take care of them. Tell me about pediatric admission, admissions. 
Yeah, just this morning, uh, we're announcing that we're not able to uh, keep pediatric admissions at Magic Valley Hospital, which we normally have uh, done. We have a pediatric hospitalist team that takes care of uh, peds patients, but just uh, to conserve both space and staff, uh, we're not going to take any new pediatric admissions for the next uh, little while, have all of those go up to the pediatric hospital. Um, so that's a pretty big change uh, for what, how we normally operate. So you've been sending some patients to Boise. If you fill up and have to send even more to Boise, and if Boise fills up, what's the contingency plan there? Yeah, I mean, we've got partnerships uh, for hospitals that we normally send patients to. Uh, it it kind of gets down to this uh, issue of uh, starting to make calls and understand what uh, surrounding uh, health systems, uh, hospitals, uh, even neighboring states, uh, what their capacity is, and then uh, finding a place to send people. It's really suboptimal uh, a position to be in. And it's frankly the thing that we've been talking about trying to avoid throughout the pandemic. So the fact that we're sort of toying with the possibility of needing to do that is um, uh, very sad. Uh, tell me about how this is affecting staff. Are you short on staff and how are you handling it if so? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the X factor in all of this is as the community spread of the virus gets sort of out of control, you inevitably lose a lot of employees uh, to uh, illness. And so uh, we've been good about protecting uh, our staff from COVID in the hospital. But of course, they go home to families, they go home uh, to their children. Um, and um, we've had a lot of staff out uh, with COVID. Um, so yeah, we've for the last couple of weeks, we've been going into many nursing shifts between four and 15 nurses short. Um, and that requires just constant effort by the administrative uh, uh, nursing staff to be calling and bringing people in for extra shifts, uh, work uh, overtime. It's been exhausting for everybody. I mean, the nursing staff is working extra shifts and overtime, the physicians are seeing more patients and working more shifts than uh, normal to, to meet the need. Um, and you know that takes its toll. You can do it for a while. And I would say that um, spirits actually have been okay in the hospital, but I mean, I just don't know how long you can sustain that before people start uh, really uh, losing it. So hospitalizations, of course, are a lagging factor. And I've been keeping an eye on cases in Magic Valley and they're not going down. Uh, so what's going to happen in two weeks and how are you preparing? Well, I mean, to get to answer that question, we really need to go back to what we've been doing over the last six months. I mean, we've created very detailed plans uh, internally for you know a lot of different contingencies. I mean, just, you know, short term, we're looking at standing back up our incident command, uh, you know, so we have basically people working on uh, COVID and COVID placement 24-7. Uh, um, uh, and again, just being in close communication within the health system, we, we have started meeting uh, with our central incident command uh, to look at staffing. I know that uh, the health system, you know, administration, our COOs and uh, uh, the, that level of uh, the administration is constantly just thinking about staffing. Uh, we've got requisitions out for uh, travelers. You know, it, it's just a, a constant uh, push to make sure that we're meeting the need. 
And then, you know, we move into the next layer of contingency where, where, as we talked about earlier, like where do we send our patients next if every, all the hospitals are full? Now, right now, um, you know, the Boise hospitals, you know, especially per capita kind of have less uh, COVID patients than Magic Valley does, but uh, they, they've been full just from general patient uh, volumes. And so then you move into, you know, Boise having to uh, look at shutting down some of the elective cases and uh, saving hospital beds. And, you know, you begin some of the, the things that we did in the early phases of the pandemic as we were preparing. When you're looking at worst case scenario, is there a contingency plan that involves rationing COVID care? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the very worst case scenario, you get into what are called the crisis standards of care, which I'm not uh, heavily involved with the detailing of that plan, but it, it's essentially where you're having to ration care. And, um, you know, <laughs> we've never in America really honestly faced a situation where we've had to do that uh, systematically, where we've had to say, no, we can't treat you. You're too old. You're too sick uh, uh, or anything like that. And so that I think is the sort of most appalling idea that we could even be talking about that being on the table. Um, and you know that is part of our end game uh, contingency planning. How close are we to that end game? I think we're still pretty far off from that end game. I mean, it, there's a, still levers that we can pull adjusting nursing ratios, it, which again does, um, lead to the possibility of having bad outcomes just because we don't have enough staff to, to care for the patients at the level we would normally want to. Um, but again, I think we would probably push pretty hard on that before we were saying, no, we just can't even treat you. We're going to just let you die here in the hallway or something. You know, we've talked about levers that the hospital can pull, but let's talk about levers that society as a whole can pull. Uh, you know, we've heard officials say that voluntary mask use is high, but people on the ground are saying that's just not the case, not just in Magic Valley, but throughout the state, especially in communities without mandates. What's your experience? Uh, my experience is that masking is not high, um, but it really does seem to depend on what, <laughs> where you're going. Uh, I personally try to avoid places where they aren't good about doing masking. So, I mean, just in Twin Falls, we have, uh, you know, shopping uh, centers that really do enforce masking and people are wearing masking. And then you go to one just, you know, half a block away uh, and they are not. I mean, it's just almost nobody's wearing masking. And uh, so I think it's it's very variable depending on what location you are and where you are. I, I would not say that there is widespread uh, uh, elective uh, masking right now. So do you think a mandate would help? Well, I think, again, the arguments around whether you can mandate something that's difficult to enforce like masking uh, are pretty hollow to me. We have a lot of rules and laws which are intended for public safety, which really widely are followed without a lot of aggressive enforcement. I've never been pulled over. Uh, uh, well, I don't text and drive, but I'm trying to use the example of texting and driving. A lot of people don't text and drive because they know it's the rule, right? And so uh, whether uh, I know if police have ticketed anyone in Idaho, I don't know for sure, but just making a rule does tend to um, 
uh, encourage people uh, to more sort of aggressively follow that rule. Speed limits are the same. There's not a cop on every corner making sure that people are following the speed limit, but in general, people tend to follow, follow speed limits, uh, at least uh, broadly. You have a statewide audience right now. What's one thing you would like public policymakers to know? Uh, we need to do more. I mean, from a pub public policy standpoint, we're really not doing anything systematically to try to combat the virus. Uh, my, you know, experience this week has been uh, that no legislators uh, at any level are really willing to do anything to help uh, stem this tide, and they're really asking uh, frontline healthcare workers and, frankly, the schools to shoulder the entire burden of the uh, of the virus right now. Um, and so again, do something to help your community be more safe. Uh, th this is resulting in deaths of people. And some of those are almost certainly uh, preventable. So let's let's do something about that. I wanted to ask you about this week's Public Health District 5 Board of Health meeting at which some of the commissioners really expressed intense skepticism that a mandate would work. Um, and in fact, a couple of them voted in favor of asking the governor to implement a statewide mandate, but voted against implementing one themselves. So where does the buck stop when it comes to these policymakers? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit what we've seen at different points during this pandemic is really because of the other political pressures, you know, people being concerned about freedom and um, the, the concerns that we could go back to needing to shut down businesses. I think uh, they sort of bow to that pressure and don't want to take any actions, even one like a mask mandate, which of course, does not shut down businesses, and I would argue keeps businesses open, which I can expand on in a second. But um, yeah, to me, it doesn't make sense if you're asking the governor to do a statewide mandate, but you're not willing to vote for a local masking mandate. It really is about not wanting to be the one that made the decision. Um, and so that's, that's what we've seen at almost any level within this uh, pandemic. Uh, the federal government has said states should deal with it. The states in large part have said local should deal with it. Local says uh, even more local, the city should deal with it. And then, you know, or they send it back up to the governor to try to deal with it. Let's talk a little bit about that, because balanced with public health, you also have the health of the economy. And while Idaho has had some of the strongest economic rebound numbers, depending on which metric you look at, you know, there's still a really big concern about the mental health effects of a shutdown. So really, how do you balance the, the concern over the economic health and the mental health of people and the public health aspect of mask wearing? I, I think it's a little bit of a, a false dichotomy because the reality is we're getting shutdowns as a result of the virus. So I'll share just a personal story from this week. One of my office mates uh, went to the coffee shop to pick up pastries and coffee for the team because we've been working hard this week and the coffee shop was closed because of COVID, right? So, and uh, I know that they were not wearing masks in there the week before. Um, so this is exactly, why that's such a false dichotomy because the reality is would masks for sure have kept them open i can't say that because they may have gotten the virus at home or whatever 
but it certainly is suspicious that a store that uh, was not masking is now completely closed, doors locked, because their office is out sick uh, with COVID. Um, and we heard, uh, you know, on the press conference with South Central yesterday from uh, Cliff Bar saying they're having trouble keeping, you know, all of their shifts running. And he he actually shared economic numbers of what the impact of people being out sick this year has been. Not shutdowns, but just out sick. And it was like $200,000 that it's cost them uh, because of lost revenue by people being out sick. So I see this as a completely a false dichotomy and wearing masks actually probably defends the economy better than anything else. Part of the reason I would say that our economy has been so strong is we've kind of lucked out and we haven't had the big outbreak like we're having in Magic Valley. All right, Dr. Kern, thank you so much for your time. Yep, thank you very much. See ya. Board of Health members aren't the only ones facing this unanticipated challenge. On Friday, I spoke to Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News about rising cases throughout the state and how school board trustees are navigating the choices ahead. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kevin. Let's start with the COVID case numbers statewide over the last week or two. It's not looking good. Not looking good at all. Um, you know, as we track the numbers, we've seen record numbers of new cases statewide. We're seeing daily records like we saw a week ago Friday. You know, I track these every Friday. I do a blog on our, our website at idahoednews.org every Friday evening. And I'm compiling this week's numbers. And at this point, we've got 20 counties that are seeing an increase of more than 10% just in the past week. That's almost half the counties in the state. So this isn't an isolated localized issue. I mean, this is this is pretty much a statewide spike in cases from eastern Idaho uh, into areas of north Idaho and everywhere in between. And there are, of course, a couple different ways to look at those cases. You, know, you and I both look at the numbers five o'clock every single day, and there's the total number of cases, and then there's the case rate. And when you look at that case rate, there are a lot of rural counties that are being hit pretty hard. They definitely are. So, you know, it, it's, it's really kind of interesting because when you look at the, the case rates, uh, you know, Ada County obviously has the most cases in, in the state and saw a pretty significant spike in cases just on, on Thursday. But when you look at the overall rate, not as bad, not as acute as we're seeing in some of these uh, rural counties, some of these, you know, mid-sized counties like Madison County, where you've seen this huge increase in cases, it also translates into a, a really high uh, concentration when you divide it against the overall population. So let's talk about how this affects public schools. Uh, there are a lot of school boards that are eyeing those numbers and it's affecting whether or not kids can go back to school in person. Yeah, and we're, we're seeing a lot of you know, local controversy about what's happening in the schools and what uh, school boards are having to decide. Um, in the aggregate, when you look at those case numbers, as I do uh, in, in the schools, uh, school-aged children, 5 to 17, those numbers are increasing, and they've been increasing faster than the overall statewide rate. So, you know, relatively speaking, uh, we're seeing a little bit higher percentage of uh, cases in school-aged community, which, of course, translates into concern about, you know, are kids going to spread the virus within the school? Does that leave teachers and staff susceptible? Uh, does that 
lead to community spread. So those numbers at, at the K-12 level, as best as we can break them down, are really important because they're really an indicator of what may be happening in the communities. Well, let's talk about one of the more high-profile district controversies that Idaho has seen lately. Uh, West Ada teachers coordinated a sick out at the beginning of this week that lasted two days. And full disclosure for our viewers, my mother works for a West Ada school, although she isn't a teacher. Um, but Kevin, can you tell us about the sick out and what's next for these teachers that are concerned? Well, what's next is that West Ada has gone back to school and they're in a hybrid model, which means that uh, the 38,000 students are splitting their time between face-to-face -face learning and online learning. They're, they're in school one day, then they're at home and they're doing that on, all, on an alternating basis so that uh, only half of the students are in the buildings at a given time. But, you know, West Ada is six weeks into the school year. And what we've seen in these six weeks, we had a really, uneven rollout of online learning uh, right after Labor Day. Lots of uh, upset parents. You had legislators write a letter to the trustees urging the trustees to go full-time face-to-face learning. And, and some fairly powerful legislators who signed on to that, Mike Moyle, Chuck Winder, you know, Stephen Harris, some folks who have some real clout at the State House weighing in. You've got a recall election right now targeting all five trustees because uh, this parents group is upset about the rate of the reopen. And as you mentioned, the sick out, you had hundreds of teachers calling in sick on Monday and Tuesday. So you've got nervous parents, you've got nervous teachers, upset parents, and you have impatient legislators. And that's the, you know, that's the hurricane that's hit landfall at the West Ada District. And that's what the trustees are in the middle of right now. And there is a lawsuit against West Ada that was filed this week about the sick out um, over whether or not it was a, a strike. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So this lawsuit was filed. Uh, the Idaho Freedom Foundation is uh, supporting this uh, lawsuit that was filed on Tuesday. And it's really what it's targeting more than more than the district. It's targeting the union, which uh, you know, orchestrated the sick out and is challenging the, the legality of public employees uh, staging, you know, what amounted to a, a walkout that effectively closed the schools for two days. So, you know, obviously we'll watch this uh, case pretty closely. Are there other districts around the state with rising case numbers that are eyeing what the West Data Education Association did and maybe considering their own sick out? We haven't heard of any districts uh, at that stage of the process right now. That's not to say that teachers aren't uh, privately talking about their options. Uh, I think, you know, especially teachers who are, you know, who maybe have uh, medical conditions of their own, uh, maybe are a little bit older, maybe are in, in that demographic uh, where they have more of a concern about COVID-19. I'm sure you have teachers and, and staff members really weighing their options and wondering about uh, the safety of being in the schools. So right now we don't know of any uh, any similar actions going on around the state, but uh, again, we're only a few weeks into the school year. And if everything we're hearing from the health officials and the health experts is true, we're not out of the woods here by any stretch of the imagination. It's gonna get worse before it gets better. So who knows what we're gonna see in the school districts. The recall in West Data, the recall effort in West Ada isn't the only one happening in Idaho right now. So elsewhere, there are other parents who are upset with blended learning models as well. 
Right. We have uh, recall efforts in the works in Pocatello, Chubbuck, and Idaho Falls. So, so three of the largest districts in the state are looking at recalls. But you know, it's not across the board angst and, and, and controversy. Boise School District went into a hybrid learning model for K through 12 this week. Very similar model to what has caused all of this controversy in West Ada. And you have not seen the same kind of, uh, of unrest. I mean, there are union members, I'm sure, who are concerned about this and teachers who are concerned about this. But as far as an orchestrated uh, counter, uh, you know, counter protest uh, or anything like that, we haven't seen that in Boise to this point. I'm thinking about a lot of these trustees around the state at all of the different school boards, and they're kind of in an impossible situation. There are a lot of teachers who are concerned about their safety. There are a lot of parents who are concerned about their kids' education and don't want blended learning models. And and what? how are trustees viewing this impossible situation that they're in? You know, I had a chance to talk to a couple of former trustees to kind of get more of a detached view of this. I talked to Troy Roan, who had uh, served on the Boise School Board until just last month. He resigned in, in late September out of frustration. He, he was really frustrated that the, the federal government and the state government has not taken a leadership role in dealing with the pandemic and has basically punted the issue to local school boards. And, you know, Troy Roan is a professor at Boise State University, very, very smart individual, and, and just felt very frustrated by this. And I talked to him about his eight years on the school board, and the biggest controversy that uh, he can remember from eight years before 2020 was uh, back three years ago when the district talked about trying to move up the start of the school year into mid-August, and there was a, a lot of uh, consternation about no, you're, you're cutting short summer, you're, you're making our kids go back to school in mid-August, how dare you? That was controversy for school boards before 2020. And you know, now I think you've got school boards who are in a very, you know, they're in a no-win situation. You know, they're, you know, they're not gonna make anybody happy in, in West Ada's case, especially you're seeing that. Uh, and, and dealing with a very complicated issue and, you know, you know, very literally a life and death issue for teachers, for staff, for the community at large. I've sat through a lot of public health district board of health meetings lately and, and read coverage of other school board meetings. Um, and I get the sense that a lot of these officials are flustered. This is a scenario that so few people anticipated and frankly, is uh, much more complex than a lot of them are prepared to deal with. Um, how do you think this is going to affect who is willing to run for office in the future? Let's put school board positions into some perspective here. It's not like a seat in the legislature or a seat on a city council. You know, these school trustees, uh, they're, they're unpaid. Uh, they're untrained. I mean, there's no mandatory training for school trustees. They can get training if they want it, they, if they want to pursue it. Uh, these are folks who are, in many cases, they're, they're parents or they're local business people, and, and they just want to kind of get involved in their community. They're concerned about education. They're, you know, they're passionate about education. But a lot of school districts really struggle to find people who are willing to take this position in the first place. You know, we've got this recall going on in West Ada. You've got five trustees in West Ada. One of the five trustees actually won a contested race to get on the school board. And the other four trustees 
have run unopposed in the past. And that's the largest district in the state by far. I mean, that's a district where there isn't exactly a, you know, you know, a, a whole bunch of wannabe trustees waiting in the wings wanting to to serve for, for no money. Yeah, I think, you know, I talked to Quinn Perry with the Idaho School Boards Association. This has been a concern for the, that organization for years. Uh, trustee positions that have gone wanting that uh, basically districts have had to recruit people to, to serve. And, you know, they expect that that will only get worse, that the, that the you know, it's going to be harder for districts to find people who are willing to serve. And, and I, I have to think that that's going to be the case. For more of my conversation with Kevin, including an update on higher education, listen to the Idaho Reports podcast. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.